Thanks for listening to the First Presbyterian Church of San Francisco Sermon Podcast. We pray it is a blessing to you and that it brings glory to our Heavenly Father. You can learn more about us by visiting us online. Just go to www.firstpresbyteriansf.org. Today's sermon is from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 15 to 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he said to him. Simon, son of John, he said to him a second time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep, he said to him. Simon, son of John, he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Lord, you know everything, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple that Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? If it is my will that he remain until I come, Jesus said to him, what is that to you? Follow me. So the saying spread around among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're here at the very end of the book, where we've made it all the way through John, believe it or not. It's kind of hard to believe. It's been quite a long journey, if you've been following along the whole time. We uh, There's still another message uh, I want for us to end on in that last few verses. Now, what did, what did happen? You notice that in the text, there's a reference to Peter's death. And... Uh, we, what we know is not recorded in the actual words of Scripture. So we can't, like, say this is certain knowledge, but, but we have good report. And uh, the first report comes from the second century. So it would be about uh, Peter probably died in A.D. 64, uh, which, would, which would mean that Origins, Origins I think it's Origin first, Origins uh, account, one of the early church fathers and historians, Origin says that, tells us that, and Tertullian about in the third century also tells us, another church father and historian, that Peter was crucified. 
He was crucified in AD 64. Nero was celebrating his 10-year anniversary of his of his coronation, of his ascension to the uh, to the Ro to the Roman throne as emperor. And there had been some troubles in in uh, in in Rome, and and he was known to be a little bit uh, unbalanced psychologically, anyway. Uh, and so, but he there had been a uh, scapegoat. A scapegoat uh, was was uh, needed for some of the the burning of Rome and and these kinds of things. And uh, Christians became an easy easy target. And so a number of Christians were were crucified and beheaded in AD 64. And uh, that's part of how a Roman emperor would celebrate his 10-year <laughs> anniversary, too, is with a lot of blood, on his the blood of his enemies flowing in the Colosseum. Now, the story of Peter has a distinctive little, little twist to it. And this is, comes to us well-reported, that, that he actually protested crucifixion, not saying that he didn't deserve to be crucified or objecting to that per se, but saying that he was not worthy to die in the same manner in which his master, Jesus, died. And so in order to mocking that, uh, mocking that request, the report is, and good report, is that, that Peter was crucified upside down. And so an upside down cross, you may have seen an upside down cross uh, kind of co-opted by by uh, by satanic, uh, in, as a satanic image or something like that. It is, it is not, in fact. The upside-down cross reversed is Peter's image of a man so in love with God at the end, so adoring him, he didn't even think he was worthy to die in the same manner in which his Savior died. It was amazing. An amazing transformation that happens to Peter, actually. So that's the report that comes to us. And it's and and uh, we don't have to believe it completely, but it, it seems very believable as it stands. Now, but let's but let's this is the scene here. Let's let's now let's back into the scene that's we just that Natalie just read for us. And I want I want to I want to know. Did you smell it? Did you hear it? And you're like, what did you smell? There's no smells recorded in the story. But but it, 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 but but walk with me here. Walk with me here because you have all we've all been in this situation. Walkie's walking on a beach. We know that he just was sitting at a fire, charcoal fire, brawling fish. And Jesus and now is walking. We know he's walking. He doesn't even tell us he's walking at first, but we know he's walking because John, he, he looks back and John's behind him. So it's Peter and John and Jesus. Are, they're just walking down the beach. So smell it. This is a very, this is a scene we've been in. You can smell the fresh air, the the, the, the wafting breeze of moist air hitting your nose. You can hear the sound, the slow lapping. Of, of water on the seashore. This is such a familiar, warm scene. They're walking together on the sand. You hear a bird in the distance. It's very, and one of the things I want to paint that for you is, is to, 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 so you can hear and see and, and experience afresh how, how, um, how familiar this scene is. It, it, it actually sets a yearning in me for Jesus, you know, to have this kind of experience of my God that that that, that Peter and John have, and and it's meant to. I think I think we're supposed to feel some of that, but but as we're, I want you to recreate all that and and get a sense of it because some things happen here, and Jesus Jesus takes these moments and these mysterious moments after his death and resurrection to uh, to say and do things that are that are strange that are kind of wonderful and, and kind of beautiful this is extraordinarily beautiful this is this is a kind of a capstone moment it's an extremely important answer 
to a previous event in Peter's life where he denied Jesus three times. And so, uh, so what I want to look today is Christ, Christ as he's walking in this familiar scene, I want him to enter our lives too, and, and you can hear him, and you can see his work, his restoring work. He restores Peter. You notice he then explores with Peter this truth. Now, I'll pull up, this, I'll pull up our, our text so you can see it here. Uh, you can see what I'm talking about. And uh, they'll pull up the outline as well. And so we'll see that the restoring work of Jesus here, and it's a, it's a work of, of, of taking Peter and putting him back into a place where he can be hopeful and deeply hopeful despite his record of sin. And then there's an exploring work. You see, the questions seem to explore a wound, explore the real nature of, of Peter's, Peter's heart. And so we, we are exposed to the exploring work of Jesus. And finally, and we don't notice it perhaps, but I, every, every one of the, the, uh, the, the uh, Gospels notices Christ is triumphant here. Christ is commanding. And we hear those familiar words, the first words he ever spoke to Peter in Matthew. And what are they? Follow me. And we see Christ in these three works. And these are the three works we want him to do in us, to restore and to explore us and to command us even today. So let's, let's jump in. Let's jump into this first, this first point of the restoring work of Jesus. And the restoring work of Jesus is this. Because we are Jesus' little lambs, we can have a conscience set free in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, in the good news of Jesus. Now, take a look at this. Now, and this is, this is extraordinary. And, I, and, and the text, beautifully enough, you see the threes. And I, I, I did them in, in green, uh, blue, and red. So you can see the three, the three threes. There's three sets of three, three times three here. And this is a wonderful triple kind of triple answer to the three denials of Peter. And, and so it, it, it's this answer to what had happened before. And uh, we should see also not only this parallelism that, that John uses in, in, his, in, his, in his work, but there's also other hints too. Even the language, uh, if we look down here, we'll look at it in a second, this truly, truly language, well, the only other time, the last time he had said that in John was when he spoke to Peter. Truly, truly, we'll look at that. And then we don't, right before this, in the verses just preceding uh, verse 15, we were told that they were sitting at a charcoal fire. That's a weird word in Greek. It's an unusual word. And the only other time it happens in the book of John is when Peter was denying Jesus. Remember, he's warming himself by a fire. It's the same word. And so there's all these echoes reminiscent that Christ is answering what he said before in the truly, truly's, and he is answering it in the same scene, as it were, but now restoratively. And so John's language, he intentionally uses language that's supposed to connect this as, you know, as readers and go, oh, oh, this is what this is. Oh, yes, I see it. Oh, how wonderful. So I want you to see that the language of the text does this, as well as the threes. We look here, here, here it is for you to see it. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, this is the last truly, truly of John. The rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. And then we know the story from John 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did the other disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. 
he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're also one of these man's disciples. He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warning themselves. And then again, John 18, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He said, I, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose Peter, Peter had cut off, asked, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and the rooster crows, and he wait, and he weeps, as one text tells us, bitterly. Now, I, I, I uh, why, why, why do we want to talk about this? Why do we want to talk about because we're Jesus' little lambs? Because we're Jesus' little lambs, we need consciences set free in the gospel. Because there's something just wonderful about what Jesus is doing here. And it's something I bet you're hungry for. So many of us, so many Christians, so many people in period are, are burdened, are burdened by frightful memories of disobedience. So many are haunted and hunted by memories of the things you did in high school of the things you did to that girl, what you said to that guy, how you, how, what the, how you let that person down who, who was counting on you. Or we have these haunted, and we're, and we're hunted by memories that, that fill our lives sometimes. It's not just three items, probably, probably 300 or more, right? And, and we all have this, and Peter would have had it too. And here we have it. We have it written here in John 13 and 8, uh, John 18. Now, I ask you, why do we have a record of Peter's quiet conversation with a couple of other random, random people? Because Peter himself recounted it. Peter told everybody what had happened. And so why did he tell? Why did he tell on himself? And why, why, this, why, why this three and then three? Why the three responses from, from Jesus? Well, I think it's like this. I think God is presenting something that's a kind of a fantasy for many of us. And that is, wouldn't it be great if God, if God did this, if God took, uh, you took the record of everything you've done, right? And let's say he's standing there with a record of everything you've done. And he goes, oh yeah, that time in high school, done. What was the next one? What was the next one? Oh yeah, the thing you said to that girl, done. Okay, yeah, you betrayed that guy, didn't you? Yep, done. You, wait, wait, bring, 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 bring me some more. Wait, a line item. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I think that's, in a sense, that's what we're supposed to take away from this beautiful moment on the seashore. Peter is getting a line-by-line -line item answer to his disobedience and hurtful memories that would haunt him and hunt him his whole life. But not anymore, because he has the possibility that he has the hunger for a, a, a conscience freed by Jesus. Do you have such a conscience? You know, if you don't know God at all, then I don't know where your conscience rests and how much it accuses you or, or condemns you. But, uh, but uh, you know, when we just look at all the drugs being consumed in this world, it, it seems very obvious to me that there's a lot of consciences that need a lot of assuaging and a lot of calming, a lot of hurt that's there. Even Peter says Peter was hurt. You know, there's a lot of wounds out there that we are self-inflicted that come from our memories. And, and, and this scene with Peter is meant to tell you that what Peter got is what God is doing for you. 
And, and it's such a beautiful thing. And I, I want you to have a sense, and you could take this to our Lord, that you could go line by line since you were a child, and you will hear our Savior say, you're forgiven. Go on, keep moving. I know. I know who you are. And Peter's experience is supposed to be, in a sense, paradigmatic. It's, it, it's, it's a model. It's telling you God is doing this all the time. And, and even in Peter's restoration, we should hear the echo of all our hunger to be restored. Praise him. Now, if you don't know Jesus, then I ask you to, I invite you to believe and trust in Jesus and be freed from the debt of sin that, that holds you back so hard and weighs you down so terribly. But if you're a Christian who's walked with Jesus for many years, I'm calling you again into his restoring work. Amen. Line by line, he stands to answer all your own accusations against yourself. What a Savior, what a God, what a Lord. Something else is here, though, that, 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 that's on my heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, after these three threes, it, Christ gives him a, that, this, this prophetic word. He says, you know, when you're young, you dressed yourself, you got your, but, you know, there's times come when you're old, and somebody else is going to take you someplace you don't want to go. And he said this to Sir, how he was going to die. What kind of death he would glorify God. Now, why is this here? Well, I think one of the reasons we need a restoring work of Jesus is to prepare us for suffering. Because what happens when we're suffering? Or what happens when suffering comes, when people's attack comes, or, or depression comes, or fear, or failure? What, what happens when suffering comes? You know, if Peter hadn't re received this restoring work, let's say, let's say Christ had never done this, then you can imagine Peter going into that Colosseum, and you know what he's thinking the whole time? You're finally getting yours. You're finally getting yours, Peter. You're finally getting payback for betraying your Savior. You can imagine how you're, haven't you done the same thing when bad things happen? You say, oh, you're fine. I'm finally getting my due. And then none of that's true. None of that's true to begin with. Somehow our, our, God, our God doesn't punish us like that. He, he placed his punishments on the sun now for those who believe in him. And I, I, I want you to see three of this, and this will prepare you for suffering so that suffering doesn't become so confusing, because when we suffer like we're suffering during COVID even, we're tempted to go, what did I do wrong? What's the matter with me? How am I being punished? But don't have anything to do with that. The restoring work of Jesus is such that even our suffering now is meant to glorify him, not to punish us. What a God and what a Savior. And this is a way for us to rethink his restoring work and seek it, and maybe even participate in it with others. The restoring work of Jesus is the constant work of love that's coming from our Savior. And I hope you feel restored again. This is why we go every week to communion. Why? Because we're constant, we're almost obsessed with the restoring work of Jesus. Praise him. Praise him. He is king. Let's look at, and, and, so, and so now we can go with full assurance of faith. I, I wanted to take you to this, this text in Hebrews 10, 22. The full assurance of faith that Peter would need was what? His heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Do you have that? I love this idea of being sprinkled by Jesus, sprinkled in his blood. Do you have that? Do you live in that freedom and that joy? You can. Trust in Jesus. Trust him today. Let's look, though, because Christ isn't merely leaving with restoring. There's something exploratory here, it seems. You know, Peter responds with some hurt, you know, and, and you can hear that, and I don't know how you would have responded in this kind of situation with, with Christ pressing, pressing, as it were, in, in, in more and more. 
And so we, we find that Christ does this exploratory work. Because we're Jesus' little lambs, we find that we need hearts on fire for God. Hearts ablaze with passionate zeal and love for God. How do we see this in the text? Well, the love, the love language. Now, you may be a little savvy about your Greek New Testament. You may not. But in the Greek New Testament, there are two words for love that are used again and again. For our love for God and his love, even his love for us. And that is the word phileo and the word agape. Now, phileo means brotherly love. It's the love of affection and friendship. Back in uh, John 16, Jesus said, I call you friends, you see. And, there, and I don't call you servant. And there's this, and it's the idea of being friends with God. The, the greatest intimacy with God in the Bible is, to, to be, is this, to be described as a friend of God. And then there's the word agape. Now, what I did here was in order, in order for you to be able to read it uh, and, and, and follow it, if you want to, uh, in, uh, from the Greek, la, the, the agape is in italics and phileo is underlined. Now, you notice phileo happens, uh, what, one, two, three, four, five, five, and, and agape happens twice. Uh, some people would like to make a big deal over the differences between agape and phileo love here in this conversation, but it's almost impossible to do so. And John doesn't seem to be giving us any hint as to what the, as a, and, and they weren't speaking Greek anyway, they were speaking Aramaic. So, so what is, what, what's the point here? Why include both of those words? There's a third word, eros, but that has nothing to do with this. This is, this is the love of, uh, of, uh, of the pure love. Uh, phileo and agape both have a purity to them and a joy. Now, as we, as we look at this, what, what's the point of John here? It's a full love. It's a whole lot of love from God and a whole lot of love from us. In other words, every way that you can describe love, that's how God loves you. And every way you can describe love is how you should be in a passionate love for God. You see? And so the words wind up giving us the full spectrum. And, and that's really important because that's the full spectrum of love is the way the scriptures define love. And, and, and they define what it is to follow God in complete, in complete surrender. And so, uh, so we, first we see in the language a whole love. And the second thing I want you to see here is, look at this, feed, tend, feed. Now, tend means the shepherd right here. Feed, tend, and feed is the answer. And what God, Christ does something very, very beautiful right here. And he says there's no abstractions in love either. In other words, you can't say you love God and don't, don't, aren't connected to his church, aren't a part of feeding his little kids, of being a part of Sunday school programs, and, and being a part of worship, and, and the care and discipleship of others, and Bibles. In other words, love is not an abstraction. You can't say you love God and don't love others. That's nonsense. And in fact, true passion for God will always look, will always result in real passion for his church, for his people. So, uh, uh, and what we can, let's explore this a little bit. And we can take a look, look at it. And you'll see what I mean. Look here. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm, these are words from Christ to the, to the churches, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. But it, you know what he says? He doesn't talk about their saying they love him or the passions. He talks about, I know your works. In other words, I know you're not really loving because you have let love be a mere abstraction. And you haven't included in it real dedication to other people, to my lambs, to my, 
Ooh, this is really, this is remarkable. And we really see here the rebuke that's in the scripture for people who claim that they can have an upward devotion without, a whole, without an outward one to others. And such people are deluded. Uh, and we can fall into that delusion. It can be easier to want to talk about loving God than really feeding and tending and shepherding and getting involved in other people's lives. Is it? Because that's the messy bit. That's the, that's the hard part. Uh, I've heard one more than pastors say that ministry would be so much easier if it wasn't for all the people. <laughs> that's funny, right? It's supposed to be funny. I think it reflects a sad division in our hearts that we tend to think we can have one without the other. This, uh, uh, as we kind of look at this, uh, not only do we see this uh, connection, but this whole love. Take a look at the whole love, the agape and the phileo, in, in Christ's commands, uh, in Christ, when Christ sums up the law. One of them, a teacher, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. And look at the alls, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. God is to be a consuming passion for you. It doesn't matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter if you say, I'm not, I'm not a demonstrative person. I'd say, I call Huey on that. You are to call, still call with all, with all the heart you got. All the heart you have. But I want you to notice something else. So this wholeness of the love of God, that we're the whole love we're supposed to have for him. But you'll also notice that Christ and the, 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 the scribe is trying to trick Jesus, right? And, and Jesus answered them. But then Jesus adds more teaching. And he says, and the second is like, you asked me what the greatest was. Let me tell you the second too, says Jesus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does he always, he says, these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole Bible depends on both of these Together, you see, for love that's articulated to God that doesn't become love for others is really just is just uh, bullcrackers. It's not. It's not real. It's not the real thing. And and Peter's telling John is tell Jesus is telling Peter. Sorry, Jesus is telling Peter that right there. He's communicating it to him. And well, it, I, my love is complete, and John is using that in the words. And my love has. It's not an abstraction. It has it's where the rubber hits the road. That's where we see this language that makes so much sense now. Take a look here. God's exploring. And I, I guess in this moment, I see Jesus really in this moment right there in Psalm 139. Well, one of the things that one of the things we can do in response to this is invite Jesus to explore our hearts more. Look at this. Look at look at the look at the psalmist. We can we can pray this to Jesus. Search me, Jesus. Know me. Try me. Know me. See. Lead me. Ooh, the, the, all these commands being being called out in prayer are what explore me. Show this. Show me what Chris is saying. And what John is teaching here, Father, show me how I, like Peter, am tempted to disconnect my love of God from others. And show me how to restore them. And show me the ways I'm doing it. In other words, you're going to invite God into this process with you so that you can figure out why you have a divided heart, you see, and why your heart's not on fire. And, and, and you take the threat of being spit out of his mouth because of your works betraying you, Really, seriously, you realize there's no middle ground to stand on here. And God is calling us to passion and calling us with passion to passion and then calling us to look to him to fuel our passions and create them. And this, this wonderful way that Psalm 139 ends is really now the believer's heart and cry to Christ. 
to be to be explored by him. And, and this is a work you can help other people can be a part of too. And 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 you and God will give you tools to do it if you seek him for it. And I think we can be a little afraid of this. We shouldn't be. Because ultimately what we're going to do, lead me in the way of everlasting. See if there be any grievous, hurtful way in me. And Peter was hurt, right? The exploring process can hurt. <laughs> it can bring out griefs that need to be brought out. But those are to heal us. They're to show us our hypocrisy. To show us how we live compartmental lives, compartmentalized. And, I, and, we, and we separate things out in ways that we can't really. Not if we really want to serve God. Not if we're really sincere. Not if we really believe him. But, uh, and so, show it in your, show if you truly love him, show it in your devotion to his lambs. Um, we're going to be entering a time as a church plant where, as a church, we're not a church plant, we have elders and everything, but as a church, we're, we're going to be very small for a season. A uh, number of people have been called by God to move away. And um, it's going to be all hands on deck, right? We're going to have to, we're going to have a chance to show our love in how we and how we take care of our kids, how we take care of each other, and how we're loving each other, and uh, and we and and that and that's really that's really going to be a very real part of our lives. And so, uh, God, praise Him, let Him do this work among us, and connect those dots. But let's look at the last work of God in this text: the commanding work of Jesus. Because we are Jesus' little lambs, we must surrender to God alone. Why, why this last point? Well, it's in the text first. Uh, it, it's my lambs. It's my sheep. It's my sheep. It's follow me. It's Lord, but you follow and you hear it in a way. And it's funny. Christ, I, I've told you this before. He wears his majesty and his kingship like a very comfortable jacket. In other words, he, he wears it and, and, he, and, and it's like he doesn't even aware of it. And, and it's very easy for us. To, to say, oh, yeah, Jesus always talks like this and not realize that Jesus is talking like this. This is wild. This is my sheep. My Everything is his. And everything in the end comes down to a command to surrender to him. Whew. Instead of what? Instead of surrendering to the comparisons that we always do with other people. Isn't that fun? Isn't that amazing? That's where Peter goes. So Peter's in this moment of restoration, and uh, maybe you've had moments of grace and restoration, and, and we, can be, we can be sabotaged right at the moment that we get God's love. Right at the moment we get God's love, there's a, there's a, there's a sin waiting for us. And it's, it's, it's the last of the Ten Commandments. It's the catch-all. It's the boogeyman sin, I call it. It's the sin that cleans up. And what I mean by that is you can say and probably defend yourself against every other sin in some way and say, I didn't, at least I didn't kill anybody. Or didn't, I'm a liar. I'm not a liar. You may have ways you defend yourself. But when you get to coveting, when you get to wanting what other people have, when you get to, and another way we do this, you're comparing to other people. Comparing what we had to what they have or what they're going to get. And the sin of comparison is the sin of coveting, and the sin of envy that comes into our souls. This last sin, uh, look, you know, they, uh, in, 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 uh, in ministry, we call it steeple envy. You know, have you ever heard of that? Steeple envy, where you envy what another, what another man has in his church or his building or his leadership or his, or his budget. And, and if you don't think that lives in the heart of your pastor as a sin, you know, as a sin temptation, you're, I, I, I'm afraid I have to tell you you're wrong. I'm just like Peter. 
I can hear the message of grace and immediately go, yeah, but what about that? What about him? Uh, you know, just hear the whiningness almost in it, right? And, and we're all, we know how capable we are all of this. This is the clean up sin. And, and it really catches us all and exposes us all. Even Paul confessed it. It's one of Paul's most vivid confessions. It's in Romans 7. He's talking about the law. And is the law sin by no means? If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't even known how sinful I am. But, uh, but I, I would have not known what it is to covet, to want what, what other people had if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, what did it do? It produced all sorts of covetousness inside. That's his great work. And it's his work. It's a, it's a good work because if, if once we see it, we realize how much we've been forgiven. We realize that sin clings so deeply to us, even in the moment of Peter's installation. You know, the, the words are so lofty. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And there's a, there's a way he's almost being commissioned to be the head of the church now for a season. And Peter will be the leading pastor of the, and he's being restored. And, and But of course, right in that moment comes another temptation to compare to others. Do you have, do you suffer with this? Uh, this always will get me, uh, and if you, I think if you're honest and fair, it gets you too. And 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 what is this covetousness? <laughs> you know, in a sense, it's funny. It's the one thing that says, I don't believe God's really king. Because you see, if I believe God really was king, I would say everything I have is exactly what is appropriate for me to have out of his sovereign mercy. But when I complain that I don't have what he has or her, she has, I'm saying, no, Father, you screwed what's one up. You messed this up, Dad. You messed up on me because I don't have the good stuff he has. And that's not fair. You see, it's a quarrel. It's a fight. It's a dispute over his kingly sovereignty, isn't it? When we covet, oh. how do you how do you deal with covetousness then? How do you deal with covetousness? Well, and this is a good question, and this kind of brings us to the end of the story here. How do you deal with covetousness? Um, I, I want to come to the end of this. You know, there's this weird ending part to to this text. It's right down here. The saying, um, if is it my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And then the saying spread amongst the brothers, some superstition that maybe, uh, maybe um, there's an old myth, even in our culture of the wandering Jew. I mean, that would be John. He would wander forever. Some, some eternal, some eternal guy. And that's all, that's all mythic garbage. There's nothing to do. I don't like that in the Bible or anything like that. But instead, um, what do we do know how we do know how Jesus came again to John? Do you know that? Like none of the other disciples can record after Christ's ascension that Jesus appeared to them again, except for Paul. But Paul never met Jesus during his earthly ministry here. And so the other disciples never had a, a vision of Jesus again like that. They didn't get that again. That's not that's not a part of their treasure to have him appear like this. But who does he appear to? He did come again to John. He came to John. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, says John, as John wrote this at the end of his life. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. He heard a voice like roaring thunder. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's the name of Jesus. That's Jesus' own name for himself. 
clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, which is the Bible, which is the Word of God. And his face was like the sun shining in all its full strength. You know what the answer is to a covetous heart? To worship and surrender to this glorious Savior. In other words, it is to get Christ big enough to, get, to hear his commanding voice, follow me. To hear the need to surrender and to put surrender back into our vocabulary and back into our thinking. For without surrender, you really ultimately can't know God. Not God, you can't know him the way that he, he seeks to be known and to know us. And at this point of surrender that we finally put him on the throne as the commanding Lord, you see in this great vision here, he's terrifying. You know, in this moment, you know what John does? He falls at his feet. He's terrified. Even though... He was walking right along with him on the beach. Well, I guess this, this happened somewhere in the 90s. So that would have been 60 years before. Isn't that amazing? I wonder what his memory was like of that. But old man seeing, seeing, seeing Jesus, not on the seashore, but seeing him in resplendent power as the king of kings. And I think it's when we get Christ, when we get worship right and exalting Christ right, that contentment is possible. Because the only way that we can finally go, oh, I get it. My lot is the lot of love you've restored me to. And you're exploring my heart by showing me these things. I need no longer covet what any woman or man has or any ministry or success or joy or, or prosperity. Because I know I worship such a king and that he does and he, he does as he commands as he sees fit in the world. Praise him. He is regal. Who am I to question in my, in, my, in my dissatisfaction with my lot, which is essentially that's what, that's what I'm doing. I'm questioning him when I'm dissatisfied, when I'm not content. And the secret of contentment comes out of worship and praise and putting God on the throne. Worship and surrender to the commanding work of Jesus. He says, he says to you, he says to me, he said, this Christ through the flame of fire and that Christ walking on the beach, the restoring Jesus and this commanding Jesus. He says to this generation, he says to first press, he says it to me, he says it to my wife, he says it to all flesh, follow me. Praise him. Let's pray for grace to follow him. Dearest Lord and Father, oh, how we praise you for your word. Oh, how we thank you that you gave us a picture of your restoring work, that we can, we can sit there and listen to you talking to Peter and go, oh, gosh, I, oh, gosh, I need a line item. I need a line item forgiveness from Jesus. And, and this is a promise. That's exactly what we're going to get. <laughs> line by line, Father. Oh, release us and free us from the, and sprinkle our evil consciences. And, uh, and yes, and, and free us from what haunts us and hunts us. Father, now with the Holy Spirit, explore us, search us, try us, know us, and find the grievous ways in us, and lead us to wholehearted, whole love for you. The whole love of friendship and adoration and sacrifice 
Let us agape and phileo you, Father, in our hearts. Love that's all that love can be, because that's how you loved us. And help us, Father, not to leave of our love be abstractions, and to claim we can love you and not love others, and, and not be adduced, not sacrifice our, our, our time, our hearts, our, our love. And finally, Father, give us the gift of surrender, which will come when we have a vision of you on the throne in your glory, and we are no longer grumbling against you that we wish we had this or that. Oh, Father, how we are such a discontented people at times. And we and I just I know, I know that's a lack of surrender and a lack of seeing you high and lifted up like this. I know that's what it is in my heart. Now we thank you, Father, for such beautiful words from your Son. We come to you in worship and in our worship and in this table to find joy in you and restoration in you, your exploring work, and to hear your commands. Remember you. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. <laughs> um, let's now turn to uh, a response. Now, now uh, it's so fitting that we see these as responses, that there is a certain logic to how worship unfolds, you see, and that a worship unfolds in this way so that we, we, we do what now is natural to do. We pro let's proclaim together in response to these words the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Praise him. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he instituted a ritual that the church has observed for thousands of years and will until he comes. And this is that ritual here before you. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat, do this and remember me. And then after the dinner, he said, this is the cup of the covenant. Pouring the wine, he said, this is the cup of the covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, do this, remember me. And that remembering work, that, that remembering is us remembering what? His restoring work, his exploring work, and his commanding work in us. I invite you to this table if you need restoration and you believe in Jesus, if you want to surrender to Jesus, if you need to be explored by the Spirit and by Jesus, then this is your table. Get to it. I'm hoping uh, that you, uh, as you celebrate this at home, that you'll join us in, in joy like that, in our joy, in claiming this again. We're discerning God's body. We're discerning Jesus in this and, and the reality of the grace, of a free conscience and... Uh, <laughs> and full surrender. Now, as we're doing that, you can see why it's so important right at this moment that I, that I say, stop, halt, come no further if, if, if you think you're a good person. You see, if you think you're a good person, what need do you have for Christ's restoration? If you think you're a good person, what need do you, what need do you have for, um, excuse me, what need do you have for uh, his exploration? If you're a good person, what need do you have for his commands? You see, religious people who think they're good are in the most danger sometimes because, because they miss the point. 
Jesus came to save sinners. That's why we celebrate this in the table. If you're a skeptic and you find my claims fantastic, fantastic and hard to accept, then I, I invite you to ask God to explore you. What are you afraid of? What would need you fear if you don't even believe it's possible? Ask him to command and explore and restore. Ask him to show you these things. And he will. Now let's let's come. Now what we'll do is we, we believe our, our faith has a has a meat to it, has beliefs. And we, we articulate these in the Apostles' Creed, which is a summation of biblical teaching and doctrine that feeds us. And we'll together, we're going to recite this as a, we're going to read this together as an answer to the question, Christian, what do you believe? And after we do the, the Apostles' Creed together, we'll, we'll celebrate the table. And then there's another logic here. Then we'll sing a praise song in response to this wonderful salvation. And then at the end of worship, we're going to have doxology and benediction. And then again, we're going to pray over Frankie and Jenna. And again, this is all the same. It's all response now to what we've heard in the, from the Word of God. See? It's beautiful. So um, let's now uh, go to the next, the next slide, Arnav, and let's, um, let's I, I ask you this question. Uh, the guests uh, who are with us, you're welcome to participate as well uh, if, you believe in the, if you believe these things. So, Christian, uh, brother and sister, First Presbyterian Church, guess what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.